friendly and, and uh, good relationships with certain countries, allies, what he's done to get NATO countries to spend more. Uh, there could be some references to tough on China, and Biden won't be tough on China, uh, but, but it might come across more as a talking point uh, that, that Pence throws in. Ross, thanks very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director of SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets in Australia, first of all. The SX200, uh, that's up about uh, two-thirds of one percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up half a percent. South Korea, the Cosby is up about uh, two-thirds of a percent. And looks like the Hang Seng is also going to open firmer by about a third of one percent later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned for Back, uh, back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Jim Gould. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy and dry, sunny intervals. Maximum temperature is going to be about 28 degrees, mainly fine in the next couple of days. Temperature right now, 24 degrees, 69% relative humidity. Say 31, here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. An education activist is opposing calls to name the teacher who was disqualified by the Education Bureau for preparing class materials on Hong Kong independence. Isaac Cheng from student concern group Education Breakthrough said the Bureau removed a good quality teacher who'd received positive comments from students and parents and had been deemed not to have broken any rules by his primary school. Mr Cheng said the move was an invasion of school independence which, which would spread fear among teachers and reduce freedom of speech. He said calls to name and shame the teacher were a public insult. This is a publicly murder the teacher's futures and their career, and I strongly oppose this kind of action. And secondly, the teacher being disqualified, actually good teachers among the students and among the parents' voices. So I didn't think that this necessary way for the education bureau or any kind of institutions to public the names of the teachers, those names should be protected. The White House has released a new video of President Trump in which he says his coronavirus infection was a blessing from God. In the five-minute video, President Trump said he wanted all Americans to have the treatments he was given and promised the drugs would be free of charge. For me, I walked in, I didn't feel good. A short 24 hours later, I was feeling great. I went to get out of the hospital. And that's what I want for everybody. I want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president, because I feel great. I feel like perfect. So I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. U.S. media reports said the video was supposed to have been released a day earlier but was made public just over three hours before Vice President Mike Pence was scheduled to debate his Democratic challenger, Kamala Harris. A new report from the International Monetary Fund says it's possible to achieve net zero carbon emissions by the middle of the century at a reasonable cost. It recommends an initial green investment push. Here's the BBC's Andrew Walker. The IMF says that with unchanged policies, emissions will continue to rise relentlessly and global temperatures would reach levels not seen in millions of years. But it says that could be avoided, and the first step is what the report calls a green investment push, using tax and spending policies to stimulate investment in low-carbon technology. It would also, the report says, support an economic recovery from the pandemic. In the longer term, the IMF says rising carbon prices, which could be imposed through taxes, would also help reduce net emissions to zero by the middle of the century. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Jim Gould. Jim, good morning to you. Good morning. Today we're talking about Xinjiang. At the United Nations, 39 countries, including the US, UK and Japan, have signed a declaration calling for China to respect human rights in Xinjiang, Tibet and Hong Kong. It expressed grave concern, quote, grave concern about the existence of a large network of political re-education camps where credible reports indicate that over a million people have been arbitrarily detained in Xinjiang. 55 countries backed a rival statement. While China said the allegations were groundless, aimed at, quote, provoking confrontation among UN member states and spread false information and a political virus smearing China. Is China interning millions using forced labor, subjecting a population to intense surveillance? Do its actions amount to cultural genocide? Where can we find the truth about what's happening in Xinjiang? Is the West interfering in China's internal affairs? And are there parallels with Hong Kong? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us, of course, and our number is 233-88266 to talk to us to our guests and to Hong Kong two three three eight eight two six six is the number. Just before we get to uh, our guests, just a couple of uh, emails reflecting on uh, yesterday's discussion when we were talking about the controversy over the deregistered teacher. A concerned parent. Uh, in Kowloon Tong says one in the later months of uh, 2019, hundreds of secondary school students throughout the neighbourhood of Alliance Primary School were forming human chains to sing songs and chant protest slogans on a daily basis over the course of many weeks. I think all primary school children in the area must have been deeply impacted by this incredible show of solidarity and peaceful expression. How were their teachers supposed to respond? Did the EDB offer any help or constructive guidance on lawful approaches to explaining these events to young children and helping them process their feelings? Over the past year and a half, teachers have been under enormous stress and students have missed out on months of education. While the EDB is focused on public displays of political persecution, who is looking after the best interests of our children? One offensive worksheet is not high on the list of our problems. And... Uh, a says, can you please tell those two guests, this is referring to yesterday, that the teacher who got deregistered was the one who did the lesson plan and did not actually teach it all. So this BS about how he was doing this and that in the class is absolute rubbish. Can they please read factual information instead of their stupid Chinese propaganda? That comes from a. a couple of more emails here to kick off today's discussion. Um, I have to edit these a little bit for length. But uh, Matthew writes, uh, I'm very interested to see if an avalanche of Xinjiang denial emails opened the programme this morning. The volume and audacity of the CCP's Xinjiang misinformation campaign has accelerated recently in line with global concern. The propaganda is also enthusiastically shared by English-language fringe publications like The Grey Zone and even popular Hong Kong commentators such as Nuri Vitachi. Let us remember that uh, what uh, we now know as concentration camps from the last century were also labelled re-education camps and denied. Cultural genocide and reportedly also actual genocide is being undertaken by our government in a country of which our city is an inseparable part. Yet on Backchat we have discussed the virus in America 
almost weekly, but never touch this topic. Well, uh, thank you, Matthew. This morning we are uh, uh, dealing with this topic, and we do indeed have another email with a rather different perspective. Uh, uh, this, this one from Martin, who writes, uh, as of Thursday evening, um, I think Martin means uh, Wednesday evening, um, 70 countries had uh, signed a joint statement in support of China at the UN General Assembly regarding Hong Kong, Tibet and Xinjiang. In 2019, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, representing 57 Muslim countries, sent investigators to Xinjiang. They toured the vocational training centers and found no abuses. In contrast, also in 2019, the European Union rejected China's offer to tour Xinjiang. And Martin goes on, there are no concentration camps. Uyghurs are not being mistreated. Their culture is not being erased. They are vocational schools where people who are the most vulnerable to terrorism recruitment can learn new skills, get higher education so that they can get jobs, lead a better life away from extremism. There is even a project summary of it on the World Bank's website. China is not the only country nor the first to use re-education to counter Islamic terrorism. France implemented their own re-education centres in 2016. And uh, Martin concludes, it's bizarre after how many countries and lives were destroyed under the guise of democracy, people in the West not only don't learn how not to be fooled the next time, but help beat the drum of the next BS campaign against a region, all the while believing in their own moral superiority. Right, Martin uh, or Matthew joining us now. We have Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at the East China Normal University, and Darren Byler, Postdoctoral Research at the Centre for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado in the United States. Uh, Professor Mahoney, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining us now. Um, uh, I've got to say this is a topic that we haven't dealt with uh, before on this program, although we've been running this program for uh, for decades. Uh, It's uh, I mean, one of the reasons for that is it's very hard, I feel, to get kind of uh, trustworthy information, to get impartial information. How can we get reliable, truthful information about what's actually happening on the ground in Xinjiang? bigger and harder to answer question, which is where can we get impartial information on anything related to China today? Nearly every conversation associated with China is now hyper-politicized, taking place within highly polarized, differentiated, but increasingly intersecting local and global discourses. And this means that truth, which is almost always gray and messy, is even harder to, to discern at this point. And, you know, this problem isn't just related to China. We're facing this uh, post-truth moment uh, with with pervasive and oft-malign efforts to manipulate opinions on many topics globally. Consequently, it's not just hard to assess assess what's happening uh, objectively in in, uh, Xinjiang. It's it's incredibly difficult to communicate. And uh, I think the fact of the matter is probably what's happening in Xinjiang most likely uh, exists somewhere between what pro-Beijing and anti-Beijing camp assert. But any discussion that, uh, of that reality risking uh, legitimized and dismissed by both. Therefore, I, and I think we can see that in the comments that, that you just read out, uh, or that your colleague just read out on there. Therefore, the answer, I think, to your question is that presently there is no reliable source for impartial information on what's going on in Xinjiang. Does that mean that we should uh, give up, throw our hands in the air and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it, there's no point in talking about it? 
think that the, 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 the problem is, is, again, the problem that we face in nearly every sphere of information, whether it's, you know, what, what, because presently I'm in Washington, D.C., and there's so much misinformation in this country uh, related to COVID. And, but but it, it's, it's necessary that we struggle to try to understand what's actually happening. Our lives and other people's lives uh, uh, absolutely depend on doing so. Um, and I think precisely it's talking through these issues through, through venues like this and, and bringing people in to actually debate different points of view that we can begin to try to ratchet down and figure out what's happening, um, as well as drawing from, from a multitude of sources. Can I put the same question then to Darren Byler? Good morning to you. Uh, are there reliable, impartial sources of information about what's actually happening in Xinjiang? Xinjiang yourself then in 2018, uh, what were you able to observe which was uh, useful in you, uh, you know, deciding on what the situation there is?
Joseph Mahoney, um, is, does that tally with your observation, a, a, a massive change in neighbourhoods and people disappearing? I haven't uh, spent time in Xinjiang. I've been in Shanghai for the past decade. Uh, uh, I've, I've visited other parts of China extensively. Uh, I have talked to people who have been in Xinjiang and who have observed changes. The only, the only thing that I would caution um, uh, in terms of, of what he was saying, and, and I've, I've found this in my experience in other parts of China doing research. Uh, for example, when I go out and do research in rural areas, where you have factories where, where, um, where there's some concerns about uh, labor abuses by, by factory owners, is that when you, when you walk into that environment as a, as a non-Chinese and, and someone who's uh, you know, very clearly uh, from the western part of the world, you immediately attract uh, people. They, they immediately come to you and begin to tell you all of these stories. And it can really skew your perspective about what's happening because... On the one hand, it's anecdotal, and it's also not impartial. It's not representing. So I don't, I don't doubt anything that was just said, um, but I, I, I have learned to, to, to weigh very carefully uh, that sort of anecdotal uh, response that you get when you're in the field uh, as a coroner. Uh, I guess one issue would be uh, it's all very well to talk about the, you know, the problems uh, in getting to the the truth and the misinformation that exists uh, in, around the world, and as you say, in, uh, you, you encounter in, in in Washington, but the situation is not really the same, is it? Because because uh, in Xinjiang there is a deliberate, very conscious, very uh, uh, obvious effort on the part of the authorities to uh, to suppress the flow of information, uh, to keep things secret, uh, to not allow researchers or uh, anyone, uh, anybody independent to, to come and look at what's happening. So it's not really fair to say it's like it's, it is in Washington. In Washington, there's a flood of information. Uh, in Xinjiang, that's being deliberately restricted. Well, you know, there are a lot of restrictions in place in China, and those restrictions have, have grown over the years. And in some cases, those restrictions uh, were sensible. Uh, it used to be that as a foreign researcher, you could enter China in just about any way and do research on local populations. You can't actually do that in the United States within an academic uh, context. There are now human subjects, rules, and regulations. Um, and that's slowly starting to happen in China. But as uh, the lead-in, there was a packet of information uh, uh, during the lead-in, um, People and, and other countries, foreign countries, have been invited to go to Xinjiang, and not everyone has taken uh, China up on that. So uh, I, I agree with you that, that uh, there is a general restriction on the, on the free flow of information in China. Everybody knows that. It's not just in Xinjiang. It's in a lot of other places. Uh, some of that has been uh, positive, uh, and some of, it's been, uh, some of it's been negative. But at the same time, not everyone has really taken the opportunity to go and, and uh, examine what they were allowed to examine, even. Uh, I mean, why can't Xinjiang just say, yeah, come and have a look, we've got nothing to hide? Well, Xinjiang is in a... The answer to the question is, Xinjiang is in a period of... Uh, of um, you know, I don't think anyone in Beijing or anywhere else uh, asserts that Xinjiang isn't facing a moment of duress. Right, that there aren't higher controls than normal. 
that there aren't uh, restrictions in place. Um, but at the same time, people are still allowed to go to Xinjiang, and uh, people have been invited. There have been uh, media visits to Xinjiang, haven't there? I'm, I'm thinking of one by the BBC last year, um, when uh, their uh, uh, correspondent and uh, and a crew, a film crew, um, went to Xinjiang. Uh, they were shown uh, certain camp facilities. Uh, uh, they talked to uh, some of the people um, in in the in the schools, uh, in the centres, uh, whatever you want to call them. Um, but uh, at the end, there was still doubt about whether the, whether the people really wanted to be there, um, what the uh, BBC crew were, were able to see. Um, at, at the end of the report, there were as many questions as there were at the beginning. I mean, um, um, how do you think the authorities uh, have handled the questions about what goes on in Xinjiang? Yeah, or, 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 yeah, either, well, uh, sorry, how, how about um, Darren Bylow? What's your view on that? Sure, I mean, just to, to talk about sort of these Potemkin visits to these, the staged camps, which is what we're really discussing here. Um, that, you know, I interviewed a, a former detainee in Kazakhstan in January who said that, you know, reporters came to his camp while he was there, and prior to their visit, they were instructed on what they should say, how they should behave themselves while the, the, the visitors were in the camp, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, he didn't have any chance to talk to the reporters because he was towards the back of the room, you know, but others were asked, you know, did you come here voluntarily, those sorts of questions, and of course the answer is yes, like this is a gift from the government, you know, giving us re-education and teaching us about the extremism that we had um, thought of as normal forms of Islam in the past. That's not exactly the words that they use, but... Sort of but, but, but aren't you concerned that in, si in situations like that, that the people who are talking to you have a, have a reason for talking to you? They have, they may have, a, an axe to grind. And, and, and in a broader context, all your research and all these comments that you're making in the media and so on, you know very well that these are feeding into uh, U.S. policy and the policy of the West and the stance of the West towards China. It's all a part of that as well. Doesn't that concern you, that uh, uh, the way you're enmeshed in that? Well, I mean, yes, it, it absolutely does. I'm also strongly opposed to U.S. imperialism. I think Islamophobia that's been fostered by the United States and other Western powers and that has fostered the global war on terror is something that is detrimental to the world and is actually at the heart of what we're talking about in Xinjiang as well. Um, and so many of, in much of my writing and, 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 and speaking, I, I try to address that. At the same time, though, we have to understand that these are people's lives that we're talking about. People's lives are being affected in, in really um, you know, intimate and powerful ways. Um, and, you know, this person had talked to many reporters. Um, they, you know, after he spoke to me, I was one of the first to speak to him. And his story has stood up over time. Um, we can verify the camp that he talked about using satellite imagery. Um, you know, he had scars from beatings in the camp. Um, his, his story made a lot of sense to me, and it, and it you know, matched the, the dozen or so other de former detainee stories that I, I heard. Um, and just to speak to the, the other guest's comments about anecdotal evidence not being reliable, um, that's obviously a, a problem. Um, and that's why it's hard in doing the research that I did. It's, it's difficult. 
But at the same time, people were telling me spontaneously about the camps. They assumed also that I was Uyghur because I speak Uyghur. Um, and one person was asking in, in one of the interviews, I think, an informal interview I did was, you know, what are, what's the camp, what are the camps like where you're from? He thought I was from Arunchi. And I said, well, I'm from Seattle, and in Seattle we don't have camps. And he was like, oh, you're a foreigner. So, like, I think, like, this is so pervasive. It's such a huge part of, of Uyghur lives and Kazakh lives that we just can't deny it anymore. We now have over 10,000 testimonies from family and friends and former detainees of you know, immediate loved ones that have been disappeared into these camps. Um, so th at a certain point, the empirical evidence begins to outweigh the doubts that are, are being fostered. Okay, a couple of uh, emails now. Uh, I'll address backchat.rthk.hk. Tom says, plans are afoot in the US and UK to boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics. The amateur sporting competition allows everyone to put apart their differences and find common ground. Perhaps Western politicians can see that staying home and disagreeing with each other on social media is really working out well to resolve everyone's differences. I'm sure this is the way to fix things in Xinjiang. Uh, uh, and uh, Tom also says there's definitely a lot of unfairness in Xinjiang and things could be improved but after the US with its Islamic de-radicalization by bombing program has destroyed five Muslim countries for them criticize China for trying to do something different on the level of harsh teenage detention with mandatory Mandarin classes is the height of hypocrisy all Muslim countries that participated in the UN yesterday sided with China that's uh, from Tom talking about that vote. And Matthew has a specific question for Professor Mahoney. He says, Professor Mahoney, as an academic at a Shanghai university, if the facts presented by the US, Australian and other governments, as well as survivors of the Xinjiang concentration camps, were indeed accurate, would you really be able to say so on this program and remain both tenured and secure? That's from uh, Matthew. Professor Mahoney? Well, you know, He's already set the question up as concentration camps, and you know that's a, that's a term that we have to put uh, in, in question. Um, I think of the previous commenter's uh, characterization of, of things, but nevertheless, uh, I, I speak freely, and I, I represent my position freely. And I publish uh, in Hong Kong in South China Morning Post. I publish in Europe. I'm a, I'm a a uh, long-time editor of the Journal of Chinese Political Science, which is based in the United States. I uh, am in uh, global broadcasts all over the world, and I'm famous for speaking my mind and not always saying what Beijing agrees with. So um, I think the, 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 the real issue in Xinjiang uh, is simply that there is something uh, that no one should really be happy about, uh, and we should be concerned about that's happening in Xinjiang. But I also... I also think that we have to view it not simply through the lens of is it better or worse than the atrocities committed by the United States in its war on terror. By the way, still rippling through uh, the Middle East and, and North Africa. Um, but, you know, has China learned constructive lessons? Are they trying something different? And finally, you know, if China hadn't done this, it's not like the Islamists were themselves not, you know, guilty of, of intolerance or, or, or other issues. But if succession had really become something that had, that, that had become a possibility, then we would likely see even greater repression coming, right? Not just in China, but throughout Central Asia. 
So there's, there's almost a competition of oppression, not just between you know, what China has done in its Islamic web versus what the U.S. has done outside of its own country, but if China hadn't done this to protect its sovereignty, uh, would we be seeing a much bigger issue down the road? Yeah. Fi fi finally and briefly, could I just ask, we've only got like a minute, Professor Mahoney, what about Hong Kong? Is, this, uh, is Hong Kong in the same situation that UN uh, resolution was referring to Xinjiang, Tibet and Hong Kong? Uh, are, are we like Xinjiang? Is it the, the same rules apply here? I don't think so. I was in, I was in uh, uh, Hong Kong in December. Uh, I'm, I have a deep uh, affection and love affair for Hong Kong. I've, I've been there many, many times. I've, I've done research there. I have colleagues there. Um, and, you know, I, I heard firsthand the solidarity being expressed by protesters with uh, the Uyghurs. And while this might be an effective tactic for mobilizing popular support, I think it's strategically misguided. It's, it's exploitative and might even contribute to making conditions in Xinjiang worse. Uh, and conditions in Hong Kong worse as well. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think, I think this is one of the strange things, right? Um, you know, here we have um, uh, this thing where uh, uh, if, you, if you continue to push uh, Beijing and force them to, to you know, it, it's, it's a double movement, right? I'm, gonna, I'm going to force Beijing to take a heavier hand. I'm going to, at the same time, lay my problem completely at Beijing's doorstep and then force Beijing to solve it the Beijing way. And yet at the same time, what we see in Hong Kong, you still have rule of law, you still have due process. You haven't faced uh, Chinese military units or Chinese police, right? So it's, it's, it runs the risk of, of pushing things worse, um, and not just in Hong Kong, but okay. as, as, as noted, but in Shenzhen. All right. Well, Professor Mahoney, thanks very much indeed for joining us from East China Normal University and Darren Byler from the University of uh, Colorado. Others joining us after the news at nine. Stay tuned. The weather, 24 degrees now. Humidity is at 70%. Currently, all men are scheduled to face trial together in March next year. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Backchat on a uh, Thursday morning with Jim Gould and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're continuing our discussion about uh, Xinjiang. This is uh, inspired by uh, most recent developments, uh, conflicting views expressed at the United Nations, uh, 39 countries, uh, um, the Western countries broadly, uh, signed a declaration calling for China to respect human rights in uh, Xinjiang, and uh, a rival statement from uh, 55 countries uh, who signed that. So we're talking about the, uh, the rights and wrongs of what's been going on in Xinjiang. How we can know what's going on, crucially, uh, uh, in that uh, province. Uh, we want to hear your thoughts, your questions and your comments. Uh, we'll do our best to read out anything that we get. Uh, our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266 and our Facebook page is backchat on rthk radio 3. Uh, we've got two new guests just before we get to those. Um, some comments. Uh, Matthew commenting on the first part uh, says, Professor Mahoney didn't really answer my question but rather danced around it. If he is famous for speaking his mind and not only agreeing with the CCP, as he suggested, it would have been good if he had provided a couple of examples where he's done this on important, controversial issues. That is uh, from uh, Matthew. Uh, uh, Andrew Kay says, at least the Chinese are tackling the problem of Islamic terrorism, unlike the rest of the world, which has no worthwhile response and just endures Islamic attacks. 
And David says, strangely, the US and Western countries who frequently invade and bomb Islamic countries over the past two decades, killing millions, displacing tens of millions of people, torture and rendition people, are suddenly concerned about alleged human rights abuses of Chinese Uyghurs in Xinjiang without any credible evidence. How about the UN call on the Western nations to pay reparations for the damage, destruction and lives caused by two decades of invasion and war on Islamic countries? In most cases, started under false pretense. Where are the condemnations and sanctions against those Western countries and where are the war crime trials? Instead, the US now even sanctions the International Criminal Court and its officials. That is from David. Okay, and we're joined now by Nathan Rooser, who's a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And we're also hoping to be joined uh, shortly by uh, Zoon Ahmed Khan, who's a journalist and research fellow at the Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Uh, but uh, uh, Nathan Russo, good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, so your organisation uh, recently uh, produced a report uh, stating that there were, I think, uh, 380 uh, suspected uh, re-education facilities in Xinjiang, which was a lot more than uh, previously thought. Um, could you, since, since we're talking about reliable information, um, could you tell us about your uh, your research procedures and um, and you know where do you get your information from? Yeah, so we've found about 381 facilities now, which is quite a, quite a high number. Um, basically, when you look at Xinjiang, it's this very much information black hole. No reliable, independent information can get in or out of Xinjiang. And that's why we resorted to looking at satellite imagery, which is something that sort of is objective, is reliable, and is sort of regularly updated. So what we did was we sort of used different primary source methodology, whether it was... Um, journalists visiting Chinese state media reports or construction tenders to look at a few, to look at a good handful of camps. I think it was close to 100 camps that we had that primary evidence for. And using that, we built a very strong idea of what these facilities looked like, what the securitization looked like, what their architecture looked like, what their positioning looked like, and all of that. And then it was sort of just a matter of scouring satellite imagery looking for facilities that fit exactly that bill of what these detention facilities that we know what they look like and finding more that look exactly like that. So, so and how, we were actually mm, aided... But, but how sure can we you be... Actually, yeah, sorry. So, so, yeah, yeah, please finish, Jim. Um, we were actually aided in that a lot by looking at sort of time series data. So you can see a, tr a facility that used to be a school has transformed entirely with new fences, watchtowers and everything put up. And we also looked at night lights. So, for example, a lot of these facilities have been built out of the desert. So when we looked at the night sky in 2016, places that were dark now and a, that, that were dark in 2016 and are light now, a lot of those turned out to be camps when we looked at them in more detail, which matches with the timeline of the crackdown. How sure can you be that uh, analysis of satellite imagery can be that uh, accurate? We, we believe it's quite accurate. Um, basically, it's impossible to sort of know this for sure without independent access on the ground, which Chinese, the Chinese government has so far refused to do. Um, but we've built a very solid idea of what these camps look like. And every time that our research has been challenged by people that are unsure about a camp or unsure about our reasoning behind a camp, we've been able to explain it thoroughly, 
why these new security features show that it's an abnormal facility and why we believe that to be a camp. And often that has included that primary source evidence, such as journalists visiting, Chinese state media looking at it, and um, construction tenders, which sort of reference a legal education through transformation detention centre or something. Uh, it's quite difficult for, for journalists to visit uh, the region. I mean, there, there, there have been uh, journalists going in there, but uh, um, again, I mean, um, how, how sort of accurate and, um, and how useful are the reports that uh, come out of Xinjiang? Yeah, so it's, the access to Xinjiang, especially for journalists, is very tightly controlled. For example, I've known reporters being denied from accessing an entire county where we know, know that a prison is under construction there. Um, but a lot of the times when you see these sort of, in many ways they're Potemkin tours that the Chinese government takes journalists and diplomats on through a few select camps, but although these are sanitised camps that they've said that they sort of misrepresent the human rights abuses happening within them, it can still sort of give you this data point that this is a camp. You can look through the historical imagery of what it looked like before journalists were able to visit it. And again, yeah, that helps build up that idea of what these camps look like from the air and how to differentiate them from other facilities such as government buildings, schools or any other, any other building that sort of a normal society will have. Well, where do you get the satellite pictures? Who gives you those? Um, honestly, you can access most of it through Google Earth. Google Earth has quite up-to-date satellite imagery of Xinjiang, but where that hasn't been access, hasn't been sort of up-to-date enough, we've used other providers, and that's even included Chinese satellite providers. Uh, um, how much can you really tell what's going on from Google Earth? Uh, I, I'm just thinking that, you know, the talk of uh, genocide, a cultural genocide and concentration camps brings to mind you know, the, uh, the Holocaust, uh, in, in essence, uh, whereas, you know, the Chinese would maintain that what we're talking about here are re-education centres. They're centres in which people go, they are re-educated, and then they leave. They're not exterminated. Uh, they, are, they, are, they return to uh, life and they return with new skills. Uh, so uh, you're completely mischaracterizing what's going on actually inside these things and you're only getting a, the most superficial idea by looking at it all on Google Maps. Yeah, so we don't know as much as we'd like to, but it's very clear to look at from survivor testimony and victim testimony. And I think it's important to challenge your definition of genocide there, whereas it's not extermination. Genocide refers to a much wider thing. And, of course, we don't know enough about these camps from just looking from the sky. But when we can talk to victim testimony and sort of you start to get an idea of what happened. And, of course, um, independent observers would be the ideal way to do this. But that's, that's impossible at the moment. When, we, when you, you, throw out, you throw around the word cultural genocide, which I think is important because that possibly characterises what's happening in Xinjiang better. And although we can't look at that from the detention centres, what we have seen is a concerted effort to erase Uyghur culture and other non-Han nationalities. For example, over about two-thirds of the mosques in Xinjiang, according to our analysis, largely driven from satellite imagery, have been demolished or damaged in the last three years. A solid 60, 50 or 60 percent of the important cultural sites and significant shrines have been demolished, including one 20 kilometres out in the middle of the desert, where the Chinese government sent bulldozers in 20 kilometres through sand dunes to demolish and raise an entire sacred settlement that sat there for over a thousand years. So 
although it doesn't tell us everything that we'd like to know, it gives us an insight into what's actually happening on the ground in an area that has absolutely no reliable information coming in or out of it. So, of course, it is just one source of information, but at the moment it's the most reliable that we have, and I would love that to change in independent observers to be able to go in and see the gra- see what's happening on the ground through the different lenses than just a satellite. But at the moment, but is it, but is it, is it literally is it literally true? Satellite imagery. Okay, but is it literally true that people are going to these camps, being trained, receiving new skills, and then leaving? That seems to be the case for some of the lower security facilities. But even those lower security facilities look nothing like a vocational training centre by any definition of the rest of the world. Um, but what I think is more important is the, the higher security facilities, which are equally large, which are even larger and equal in number, that sort of seem to show no evidence of that re-education, but seem to just be for the removal of people from society for ordinary acts of faith and identity. Okay, also with us is, is Zunak Khan, a, a journalist research fellow at the Belt and Road Strategic uh, uh, Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. Good morning to you, and thank you very much for, for joining us. Good morning. Thank uh, you for having me. So, um, yeah, you know, f- f- from the information that we can gather, and of course, as we've been discussing, it all seems very partial and hard to pick apart uh, for various uh, reasons. Uh, you know, maybe people are being re-educated in, in many of these camps, but they're, uh, but you know, to call them to compare them to boarding schools, maybe as unrealistic as to compare them to concentration camps. Um, are these places where people are forced to attend, or are these places where people are not allowed to leave? Okay, I think uh, firstly it's important for me to give a context um, mm-hmm. of why. Uh, Xinjiang or what's happening in Xinjiang is quite relevant to um, my uh, where I come from. I'm from Pakistan, and actually, we have experienced after uh, in the 80s uh, and also post 9/11, there was instability. There were uh, developments in the region because of which we had to face a backlash um, of what what could occur in the case that certain ideologies, certain mindsets are allowed to fester or happen to fester. So um, I do understand that for people who don't have this kind of uh, context or who have never experienced um, within their countries uh, separatism, uh, terrorism or extremism, uh, would not understand why maybe sometimes countries need to make tough choices. So that said, um, what's happening in Xinjiang, of course, just like what's happening in Afghanistan, just like what's happening in Iraq, and just like what's happening even in my own country, in northern parts of Pakistan, in northwest of Pakistan. We can never know 100% what is happening on the ground. But the fact is that I do feel the the narrative on Xinjiang is a little, it's far-fetched. Um, it is um, maybe wishful. Maybe uh, the, the idea is not just to um, understand what China is facing or what are the reasons for China to introduce certain policies, but actually just to criticize. So um, that said, I don't want to really comment too much on why people have different perspectives on Xinjiang, but this is my point of view that, um, for example, when in the region, in Central Asia, in Afghanistan, and also in northern Pakistan, we have a problem 
of people being vulnerable and susceptible to ideas that are not conducive to society at large. And this has nothing to do with religion. It just has to do with the fact that we share a region, we share borders, and uh, whatever is being experienced on one side of the border can can be uh, experienced on the other side of the border. So, for example, in Pakistan, if Afghanistan has uh, some kind of instability or influence, Pakistan is also susceptible and vice versa. So, just like that, in Xinjiang, there was a problem of terrorism. There was a problem of uh, instability. It was not safe. And actually, I think that what the government has done could potentially be a lasting solution. Um, it's not a perfect solution, like no other solution. Um, what happened in Afghanistan post 9-11 is also not uh, definitely maybe far worse in terms of its implications on uh, people's livelihoods. Uh, what happened in Iraq, you know, we were just talking about Google Maps. And actually, I, I remember what it was like when, uh, when mushroom clouds were being talked about and when supposedly... Um, certain weapons of mass destruction were being uh, were being seen or uh, monitored through uh, these kind of satellite images as well. But the impact was one million people died uh, just in the first few months of the war. So um, I just I think it is irresponsible sometimes to make these kind of far-fetched assumptions. I do think that um, whenever there has been a threat or a perception of um, maybe a group, a group of people, a faction, that could be harmful to the interests of society at large, then there are different choices that countries have made or governments have made. Okay, so what made than terrorists and so, so uh, this is something that I just, yeah. All right, Mr. Risa? Yeah, yeah. I'd like. I think there's some. I think there's some damage sure. in sort of looking at this through purely a counterterrorism lens. For example, I'm from Australia, and since 2014, sure. Australia has seen as many terrorist attacks or plots as Xinjiang has. Mm. But we're not introducing a system, a detention regime that detains hundreds of thousands and quite likely up to a million people. Yes. And what you've seen this detention mm. level for is not acts of terrorism or not ideas of terrorist sympathy, but ordinary acts ordinary actions of sort of faith yeah. and their identity and their culture. So it's impossible to sort of... I, I don't think it's legitimate to frame the internment and the detainment I... of hundreds of thousands up to a million people purely through the eyes of counter-terrorism, whereas unless you're arguing arguing that hundreds of... Okay. A, good, a solid 10% of Uyghurs are actually terrorists, which is an absurd claim. No. And all the people that I know I... who have family detained... Sorry, may I please continue? Um, all the people that I know who have had family detained in these camps, most of them have been sort of math teachers or nurses. I don't know a single one that has had any terrorist sympathies. Okay, Ms. Khan, okay. the idea that... Yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. Ms. Khan? Okay, okay so, uh, so I I do understand that maybe if, if what uh, this number... I don't, I don't know what is the basis for this number, to be honest. But let me tell you what it feels like when, when a country is trying to fight terrorism. And I'll give you an example. For instance, um, you know, the, it's, it's impossible for people to target exactly who is influenced and how much. This is, this is just, this is not even uh, for any country like the CIA, the United States 
for Pakistan, for Afghanistan, it is impossible to say that, okay, you know what, I think, you know, 10,000 people are terrorists, let's target them. Do you know that the CIA sanctioned drone strikes that happened in Pakistan for for a long period? More than 90% of the people who died were plain civilians, and that's proven. So this is just an example of what happens when actually any group, any organization, or any ideology um, actually is able to uh, go forward and harm or damage the society. So I'm not saying that, um, you know, we should agree with any, uh, with any policy that has to maybe hurt the interests of the people, but we don't have great choices to, uh, to start with. So perhaps in Australia, maybe there were more incidents and um, the policy, the approach is different. But in Xinjiang, I think I would make a comparison with what happened across the border, what happened in uh, countries in the region. I think that would be more relevant when we give the example of Xinjiang. So that said, what I feel is that uh, whatever the Chinese government is doing seems to be a sustainable solution because it seems to provide opportunities for people who perhaps would be disillusioned or perhaps would think that uh, uh, resorting to uh, these ideologies, these ideas that uh, give them a sense of purpose, but actually they don't. Because I think uh, coming from the region, I, I don't want to say that, okay, you're from Australia, so your context or your analysis is irrelevant to Xinjiang, but there is a regional context that does make sense. Okay, and I think okay Mr. Russo. Yeah, so I, I guess I would argue that this isn't so much a sustainable solution, but more a sort of lasting regime of detention to remove hundreds of thousands of people from society to any slight. We know that people have been detained for for having WhatsApp on their phone. I've heard multiple accounts of people... I mean, I mean it, it has worked. They didn't, it, it has they, worked. they didn't know why they were detained. OK, it has worked to the extent that there haven't been any more terrorist incidents. It seems it, it's worked in the matter that blowing up a dam would destroy would destroy an anthill on the on the other side of the dam, but it would also destroy the entire village downstream of it. Um, what you're doing is yeah. what Xinjiang is doing is similar to that in its scale, whereas it's 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 a huge network and it's a huge regime of detention. For and I've heard I've heard from survivors that I've heard from witnesses multiple times that they've um they were detained. They didn't know why they were detained, but they were told to pick their crime from a list. They were given a list of about 75 different crimes, and they were told to pick which one they did, and that's what they would be sentenced with. And that's from multiple, that's from multiple corroborated witnesses. It's not just the satellite imagery. Um, so I, I guess it's just, in my opinion, it's invalid to sort of have this massive regime of detention, which I would say is unparalleled in the region and unparalleled in history for the... In, recent times for a problem of terrorism that seems quite... T terrorism is always serious, but I wouldn't say that the problem of terrorism in Xinjiang was anywhere near the problem of terrorism in Syria or ISIS. It's, in, it's not fair to sort of compare it to ISIS. Um, it's, it's, from my reading and from the reading of a lot of Uyghurs that I've talked to, a lot of it is more communal violence and issues of that rather than strict transnational terrorism which is which is how a lot of chinese 
narratives is try are trying to frame the problem. Well, wasn't, the, wasn't the purpose to head off a potential problem before it could develop? Yes, in heading off a problem by detaining hundreds of thousands to a million people for sort of anything that's seen as a slight against Communist Party ideology, it's, it's sort of a solution to a very different problem. It's not a solution to terrorism, it's a solution to sort of any political free thought for people that are considered unloyal by their race, which is what Uyghurs and other non-Han nationalities are in Xinjiang. Or vulnerable to, uh, to extremist influence? Mm. Potentially, but certainly not in the scale that this detention regime shows. Mm. Um, uh, um, uh, okay, uh, Zuno yeah. Khan, uh, uh, the, so the purposes yes. of these uh, facilities are, uh, well, other than de-radicalisation, to teach people new skills, I mean, according to the central government, are there... As, I mean, is, is there evidence that, you know, people have been become more employable, have got better jobs and so on? You know, uh, yesterday, for example, I was on a panel uh, in Beijing, and we had a group of people from Urumqi. Um, one of them was Tajik, uh, one was um, Uyghur, and another was Han Chinese. And all three of them had chosen, after spending a few years of studying and working, in other parts of China or abroad, they chose to settle in Urumqi. And this is a question that I asked them, exactly the question that you asked me. I haven't visited any of these re-education centers yet, but I know diplomats who have, journalists who have, and my question to them was exactly this. Are you safer? What is the impact? Uh, okay, what but, you know, thought? okay, but are they free? Are, you know, are they free to speak their minds in a context like that, in a public discussion uh, in Beijing? Can they really say I think, anything? I, think, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty straightforward question. Can they say anything which contradicts yeah. the official line? Did they? Did anyone actually, say anything that could contradict the official line in any way? Actually, what they talked about was just their personal experience of why they chose to be in Urumqi. And this is what I'm going to talk about. Because the idea that people are not free to, to live their lives, to work, to uh, pursue whatever they believe in um, is a little false, it's a little exaggerated. Maybe they're not able to speak their minds 100%. But I will tell you that, you know, no one, including myself, I, I don't express my mind 100% no matter where I am. If I'm at work, if I'm, if I'm speaking with you, it's, the idea is to be appropriate in a certain context. So I do think what is happening in Xinjiang needs to be understood in the context of what could have happened, what was possible. And for that, I think the comparison with countries in the region is very important. Um, people who have developed skills that could help them be more employable are less likely to resort to, to conform to extremist ideology. Giving an example of my own country in Pakistan, we have regions, we have areas where people have been susceptible, people have been influenced. And the impact is that sometimes, you know, we need to, we need to, uh, the armies need to go in and actually kill many people because it's possible that maybe more than 50% of this group of people is susceptible, is not conducive to the interest of society at large. And this is the choice that needs to be made if the issue festers. What China has done is try to understand what are the factors that make people disillusioned that make people more likely to become part of these organizations or these ideas. And one of them is 
the lack of opportunities, instability, not having a way forward, not having something to look forward to. So I, I do think that maybe we still don't have a perfect solution to the problems that we are experiencing in society at large and in the region at large. But what China has done seems to be is definitely m- much better in terms of um, how many lives we lose in that process. It really just boils down to that. And I think if people, if, if countries like Pakistan, Afghanistan spoke more openly about what is that experience when, when this issue, when this issue becomes uh, worse and what happens, what is the probability that you kill someone who is innocent or not? Okay, we're, we're, okay, we're almost out of time, but Nathan, okay, Nathan yeah. Ruzer, do you want the last word? So I'm just trying to explain this context. I understand, yeah. yeah. Mr. Reza? What you're, what you're seeing in Xinjiang is preventive policing in a way that is sort of, I think, more removed from the word policing than anything else. What you're seeing and what sort of is being described as this justification is that this entire ethnicity is susceptible for terrorism. Therefore, this entire ethnicity needs to be re-educated, needs to be detained, needs to have their thoughts transformed and needs to be given, I guess, the opportunity to see the world through Xi Jinping's eyes. And to, in order to do this, China has detained hundreds of thousands, very likely up to a million Uyghurs, for what is simply ordinary acts of faith, identity, and culture. This isn't policing. This isn't law enforcement. This isn't counterterrorism. All you're seeing is a very coercive crackdown that makes every Uyghur afraid every word they say could end them up in, in arbitrarily detained for up to 20 years, even longer. Okay, well, so the idea, there's no... Yeah, yeah we're out of time. But Nathan Rooster, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us, a researcher there with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And many thanks to Zun Ahmed Khan, a journalist and research fellow at the Belsenrold Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. Thank you very much indeed. And to our guests in the first part of the programme as well, and to those who uh, commented uh, through uh, email. We'll be back at 8.30 tomorrow, leaving you with the weather. Mainly cloudy and dry, with some sunny intervals, and a maximum temperature today of 28 degrees. Yeah, look, mainly fine the next couple of days, dry during the day, but there will be one or two rain patches in the morning. And at night, 24 degrees now. Relative humidity is at 75%.